Good morning, Woodmont. Welcome to worship uh, on this uh, morning, November the 8th. Um, I just want to say before we begin the sermon that we are working uh, very hard this month to offer multiple worship options, uh, many of which are outside while we still have the nice weather. So we'll continue our drive-in service through November the 22nd. We'll continue our sanctuary service at 1030. Uh, we have the Sunset Vespers with the Bridge Band uh, at 3.30 on uh, Sunday uh, afternoon. Today at 3 o'clock, we have our Blessing of the Animals right before the Vesper service. So come to Campbell West, uh, bring your dogs, your cats, your pets, and we will uh, we'll do that. But we are really working hard while we still have nice weather to uh, to be outside and to offer multiple worship options. And so for those who are comfortable, uh, I encourage you to, to come and, and be present because we believe these are safe and uh, we want to do everything we can uh, to stay connected as a church community and to keep worshiping. Uh, would you join me as we uh, begin with a word of prayer? Loving God, open our hearts and minds so that we can hear a word from you as we continue this sermon series. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, just when you thought that our country couldn't be any more emotionally exhausted, here we are. Um, the Sunday after the election. And I think everybody, regardless of your uh, political slant, is pretty uh, tired uh, after this past week. We've been making our way this fall through the Sermon uh, on the Mount. We're trying to focus on the, the teachings of Jesus that unite us in a world that continues to try to divide us and tear us apart, pit us against each other. Um, there was a very interesting article that was published uh, before the election on October the 30th uh, in Time Magazine by Atlanta pastor Andy Stanley. And I want to share with you some of what uh, Andy said in that article. It's, it's worth reading. He said, your political candidate will win or lose based on how American citizens vote on Tuesday in November. But the church wins or loses, the community wins or loses, and in some way, our nation wins or loses based on how Christians love each other. That's why Jesus said that we must not allow anything or anyone to divide us. Our hope is not in the perfect political party. Our hope is the message and teaching of Jesus. During our oh-so-short history as a nation, both of our current political parties and their leaders have gotten it wrong. They have failed us morally. They have failed us in terms of their leadership. Why would we as followers of an eternal king allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems, leaders, or platforms? And why would we allow ourselves to be divided by fear? Jesus's most often repeated command, Stanley says, was fear not, fear not, fear not. Instead, we must love one another as we struggle and sacrifice for the unity that Jesus prayed for. Christians can disagree politically, but we must love unconditionally and pray for unity. He says, fear should not fuel our actions. Love is the power we need, and love must fuel both our conversations and choices. 
The gospel will spread just as Jesus intended when we, Christians across America, are willing to humble ourselves and seek unity in love. That was from the article that Andy Stanley wrote, and I thought it was very well done and very well written and very timely. So last Sunday before the election, we we talked about worry in Matthew 6, and where Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Uh, have you ever noticed that in life we tend to worry about the things that we care about the most? Uh, if you didn't care about it, you probably wouldn't worry about it. We worry about our health because there's a global pandemic going on. Hundreds of thousands of people have died, and we don't want to get sick. We don't want our families to get sick. We worry about money because we want to make sure we don't run out. We worry about our families because we love our families, and we don't want anything bad to happen to them. We worry about our children because we want them to be safe and happy and healthy. We worry about what others think about us because we want to be liked and appreciated We worry about politics because, well, it's a mess. Chances are you worry about the things in your life that matter the most. But Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Now, he's not saying, don't think about your life. Uh, Don't reflect upon your life. Don't plan for your life. He's saying, don't worry about your life. And there's a difference. Planning is healthy. Worry is unhealthy. Reflecting upon what is most important is healthy, but worry is unhealthy. Taking care of your loved ones and checking in on them, that's healthy, but worry is unhealthy. And then remember that verse that we closed on last week, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow will bring troubles of its own, today's trouble is enough for today. So live life one day at a time, don't dwell on the past, don't obsess about the future, Live in the present. That's all we can do. And what worrying does is it ruins the quality of life that we have right now. Spiritually mature people learn to live in the present, and they learn to trust God with the future. Spiritually mature people realize that they can't control everything in life, so they just don't try to do that. And yes, as hard as it is to admit, there is a direct correlation between worry and faith. If we are worrying all the time, we must ask ourselves, how much faith do I have? How much am I trusting in God? People who trust in God do not worry their lives away. And yes, we all worry from time to time, but that's not a healthy way to live. Anxiety and fear is real, but we must recognize that bold faith can help conquer that. Now today we move ahead in the Sermon on the Mount into Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make you will be judged and the measure you give will be the measure you get. And then Jesus asks one of the most profound questions that we could ever ask or explore when he says this. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but fail to recognize the log in your own eye? First, he says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. You want to know what's done more damage to religion, to Christianity, to the church, than perhaps anything else? It's judgment. 
People have left the church. They have left organized religion. They have given up on Jesus because they say, you know, Jesus says don't judge, but some of his followers have become experts and masters on judgment. Think about that beautiful passage that we will uh, read in a few weeks when we get into the Advent season, which is around the corner, by the way. It's the beginning of John's gospel where, where John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that enlivens every person was coming into the world. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and full of truth. Let's think about those two words this morning for a minute. Grace and truth. If we follow Jesus, we are supposed to be concerned with both grace and truth. But some people are all about one or the other. Some people are so concerned about truth that if anybody does not adhere to their version of the truth, then they fail to show grace. But others are so concerned about grace and showing mercy to others that they disregard the truth. But John says that Jesus full of grace and full of truth. We need both. And the problem with judgment is that many people become so focused on what they think is the absolute truth that they forget to show grace, mercy, compassion. They forget to cut other people some slack. Now, in terms of truth, the sad part about our society right now is that people don't know where to turn to find out the truth. Well, yes, they can turn to Jesus, and that's what we've been doing this fall, looking at his teachings. But but where are you going to turn to find an honest version of what's going on in the world without some uh, interpretation or slant or agenda being put into it? That's a real challenge right now in our culture. People don't know where to turn to find out the truth. And so you turn one channel on and this is the truth. You turn another channel on and this is the truth. And people are very confused. They don't know where to go to find the truth. As I reflect upon our text today from Matthew 7... I have a couple basic messages, three basic messages that I want to share with you uh, this Sunday morning. The first message is this. Do not judge. Jesus says, do not judge. But what does that mean? If you go and look up the word judgment in the dictionary or if you Google it, you'll basically find two different definitions of judgment. One definition is this, the process of forming an opinion or evaluation by discerning and comparing. We respect people who are good judges of character. We teach our children to exercise good judgment. Uh, It will serve them well in life. We want them to uh, assess a situation and then make a good decision. We trust people uh, who show good judgment. But another definition, if you look it up, is this. The final judging of humankind by God. And I think it's the second definition that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 7. This definition should be reserved for God and not us. 
The first definition of judgment is a part of who we are as human beings. Discerning, analyzing, comparing, reacting. It's part of how we function. If somebody comes walking towards us with a golf club and they're about to hit us with it, we have to make a judgment and react. If somebody lies to us and hurts us deeply, then we need to make a judgment and be careful about trusting that person in the future. If somebody only wants to be our friend because they think that they can get something out of us, then we have to judge whether or not that friendship is actually worth it. If somebody stabbed us in the back, then we have to decide whether we're going to trust that person again, right? But what we don't need to do when it comes to judgment, especially as it pertains to religion and faith and righteousness, is try to play the role of God in determining the eternal fate of other people, including people that we may disagree with or that we may not get along with. You know, there's so many religious leaders and people in our day and age that try to do that, and there's really no need for it. They want to say, who's going to heaven? Who's going to hell? But Jesus reminds us that only God can judge. And to be honest with you, I'm thankful to not have that responsibility. I'm thankful to leave that up to God because I believe that God can handle it. There's another aspect of judgment that needs to be talked about this morning, and that is criticism. Some of us need to stop being so critical of other people, including people that are in our family. We have a natural tendency to look for what's wrong with everybody else before taking an honest look in the mirror to see what needs fixing in our own lives, in our own hearts. It's much easier to point out the shortcomings and flaws of other people than to acknowledge our own character flaws, and we all have them. You know, we naturally want to blame others uh, for things that go wrong, and we want to point to them and say, you're the problem, you caused this. My, my friend Will Kime passed away a few years ago from cancer. He preached at Woodmont a number of times. He used to say, if you have a f- one finger pointing at other people, then you've got three fingers pointing back at, at the source of most of your problems in life. That's always stuck with me. Criticism and judgment is often a mere projection of our own dissatisfaction and our own unhappiness in life. Which leads me to my second point this morning. We must spend as much time trying to identify our own shortcomings as we do calling out everybody else's. Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The problem is, this is really hard. And it's unnatural. And it's not very fun. There are lots of things that that are difficult for us to own in life. Uh, For example, I can see greed in your mirror, but not in mine. I can see impatience in your mirror, but not in mine. I can see intolerance in your mirror, but not in mine. I can see anger, selfishness, jealousy, contempt, resentment in your mirror, but not in mine. The list goes on and on. The concept of sin is something that Christian theologians have wrestled with for centuries. What is it? 
Are we born with it? Do we acquire it? Can we ever get rid of it? Why do some people sin more than others? Why do some sins seem to be worse than others? The most basic understanding of sin, in my opinion, the most basic concept for me is this notion of brokenness. We are all broken to some degree. Some people are more broken than others, but we are all broken. It's part of being human. We have character flaws and shortcomings. And oftentimes, the people who act like they're not broken are actually the ones who are most broken. It's a front that they put on. It's a game that they play. They pretend like they have it all together, like their life is perfect, but it's not. St. Augustine defines sin as a word, deed, or action contrary to the eternal law of God. It's that which separates us from God. Daniel Migliori was a mentor of mine, a theology professor at, at Princeton, and, uh, and he has an amazing book, uh, Introduction to Christian Theology, called uh, Faith Seeking Understanding. And this is what Migliori says about sin. He says, it's the denial of our relatedness to God and our need for God's grace. Sin is fundamentally opposition to grace. Sin is grace denied. He says, sin insulates itself into all human actions, including not only what is widely condemned as evil, but also what is commonly praised as good. Sin uh, may be most seductively and demonically at work under the guise of doing good. A lot of what our culture hails as good is actually sinful. Think about that. In Romans chapter 7, Paul states it so eloquently when he says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. In other words, many of the things that we know are wrong, selfishness, slander, criticism, anger, jealousy, envy, we know that these things are wrong, but we find ourselves doing them anyway. It's like we can't help ourselves. And Jesus tells us, It's up to us to identify these things in our own lives and then to work on them, to change them. He calls them logs. But what we usually do is instead of confronting those things in our own lives, in our own hearts, instead of looking in the mirror, we just point out what's wrong with everybody else and we blame all of our problems on everybody else because that's so much easier to do. But we need to work on our own hearts. Do you get angry easily? Maybe you should work on that. Do you say stupid things when you drink? Maybe you should drink less. Do you say one thing to somebody's face and then something else when they're not around? Stop. Do you think your political candidate in this election is is perfect? We need to talk. Most of the time, criticism of other people is often a direct reflection of what's going on inside of our own heart. The most negative people in life are deeply dissatisfied. Maybe not always. Maybe some criticism uh, can be justified. But more times than not, it's simply a reflection of what's going on in somebody's heart and they project that on to other people. And so what Jesus says in this passage is, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Show me somebody who is always critical and always negative, and I'll show you somebody who is not content with themselves.
We should identify our own flaws, our own shortcomings, and then work on it. Nobody said it's easy. In fact, I think it's one of the hardest things to do in life, to own your own shortcomings, to say that you were wrong, to say that you were sorry. But it's the only way that we're going to get better. And if we ask God for help, then we might just be surprised what happens. God might just give us the strength to deal with our own issues, our own challenges. Finally this morning, in verse 12, Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus gives us one of the greatest mission statements and marching orders of all time when it comes to living our lives. He says this, he says, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Not in some things, not when you feel like it, not just on Sundays, not when it's convenient, not when you're in a good mood, but in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this is the law and the prophets. Forgive others if you want them to forgive you. Help others if you want them to help you. Be merciful if you want others to show you mercy and grace. Listen if you want to be heard. Understand if you want to be understood. Love if you want to be loved. Put others first if you want them to put you first. Pray for others if you want them to pray for you. If people in our world, in our society, in our city, in our church, in our family could live by this rule more often, so many of the problems that we see would go away. If people could be on the receiving end of some of their words and actions, if they could realize how they come across, I think they might change their behavior. And guess what? We might all change our behavior if we recognized how we can sometimes come across. And we all do things, and we all say things that we regret. And so that's why I've always said, and I've always tried to practice those phrases, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, please accept my apology. Part of removing the log from our own eyes, being able to admit when we're wrong, being able to admit when we do something that, that we regret, we're sinful. We all screw up. We all make mistakes. The only people without any problems and issues all live in the same place. You know where that is? It's the cemetery. Because anybody who is alive has problems and challenges and battles their own shortcomings and their own flaws. I'll close this morning with those famous words of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, He offers a prayer A prayer of peace, but really it's a prayer that echoes the words of the golden rule. This is what St. Francis says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love, and where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved, as to go in love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. This week as you go about your business, at work and family in the community, ask yourself, 
Am I living the golden rule that Jesus teaches in his famous sermon? Amen.